Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here this morning. I'm so glad you could be with us and open up God's Word together with us. And my name is Andy Middlecoff. I haven't met everybody out there yet, but hopefully I'll get an opportunity to. Uh, if I haven't met you, please introduce yourself to uh, me out in the courtyard afterwards. So welcome to those of you who are our guests. And we do have a gift for you at either this kiosk on your way out on the right or out in front of the, the doors of the foyer out there as well. So let's uh, give you that gift and um, ask any questions you have of our church. And then, of course, uh, welcome to all of you, uh, my brothers and sisters who are part of our church family. So. Would you open with me to Matthew chapter 13? Um, If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you or the rack in front of you, it's on page 769. That's page 769, but it's Matthew 13. And we're back into our uh, study uh, verse by verse, scripture through scripture of the book of Matthew, specifically uh, of Matthew chapter 13 of the parables that Jesus tells. And we've uh, titled this, The Kingdom of Heaven. That's what Jesus talks about here. So um, if you want to follow in the notes, so Eric always gives us notes. I like to have fill in the blanks. And um, as you guys leave, I'm going to check to make sure all your blanks were filled in. Now, anyway, you can grab those. But on the other side, there's uh, upcoming events. So if you ever wonder what's going on at the church, this gives us kind of a summary. There's, there's more than just that, but take a look at that. We also have uh, these bookmarks that are in the seat rack in front of you if you want to use these. These are scriptures that kind of lead up to whatever we're studying on Sunday mornings together in in here. And so you can read those. There's verses to memorize. Um, So take a look at that as well. And then for you guests, I forgot to mention, there's these little cards. They're also in the rack in front of you if you want to fill those out. We'd appreciate that, knowing that you were here and how we could pray for you and if you're a part of our church family, there's also, please write a prayer request there as well. That's not just for newcomers, that part of it. So um, take a look at that. And uh, for those of you who are uh, viewing it online, good morning to you. God bless you. We're glad you're here. And um, some, some news. Okay, so last Sunday after second service, a number of the, the members of the church gathered together and asked questions. And we shared about um, this land that... that this group in town has given to us free land to, to build a, a bigger facility. We'll have more parking and more classroom space that we need. And so the church voted, yes, let's do that. And in order to pay for the development of that free land, um, let, we'll, we're willing to, if we need to, sell some of the condos that we own in the cell tower. So I'm excited. Are you? Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's pray. Father, I'm just so grateful to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning and to get to worship and praise and adore you, to get to open up your word together and be reminded of the truth. And then to take communion in a little bit. Thank you for all those things. And it's, it's so good to just be reminded in the midst of this world where there's so much chaos right now, just, just chaos, Lord, floods, wars, uh, people groups getting disbanded from where they live. Lord, just so much suffering and pain in this world. And Lord, we forget sometimes that that you still are on your throne and that you're in charge, that you have a plan, that when we're anxious and worried and fearful, that we can trust that you're still in control. And Lord, show us how to help people who are suffering so much, Lord. Use us. And this morning, as we open up your word, please open up our hearts and minds. Please nourish us with your, with your word this morning. Uh, strengthen our faith in you and deepen our hope in you. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So I don't know about you, but uh, do you remember back in 2011, Harold Camping from Family Radio said that he guaranteed that Jesus Christ was coming back on May 21st, 2011. Do you guys remember that? Harold Camping from Family Radio. And I was at the time living in a small town in Southern Oregon called Roseburg, and I saw these billboards all over the place. Look at this. The Bible guarantees it, okay? Let me ask you a question. Was he right or wrong? Did Jesus come back that May? No, okay, so he admitted it too. He said, ah, oops, I, I miscalculated. It's actually in October of 2011. So, you know, second time's a charm. Isn't that how the saying goes? Um, so, so then I don't remember the exact date in October, but he said the certain date in October, Jesus is coming back. October came and went. Did Jesus come back? If he did, we're in big trouble, right? Right? We missed it, okay? That would, be, that would be terrible. But so if someone comes to you and says that they know when Jesus is coming back, what should you do? Someone said, run the other direction. <laughs> Maybe pray for them, right? Don't listen to them. That's the bottom line, right? Don't listen. They don't know what they're talking about. Harold Camping is very good as, as many people who are false teachers. They can take a verse from here, a verse from there, a verse from there that are totally unrelated and string them together and weave this nice sounding, biblical sounding argument. And then he wove into it, well, the Jews built the pyramids and the pyramids leave us clues of when Jesus is coming back and you weave it all together. And man, it sounds convincing, but it's not true. And we know it's not true we don't even need to look into it because Jesus made it very clear when he was on the earth that no one knows, right? No one knows. Take a look at the scripture up on the screen. Matthew 24, 36, when Jesus was talking about his second coming, he says this, but concerning that day when Jesus is coming back and our, uh, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Uh, generally, the people who do claim to know when it is, they want some advantage out of it. Uh, Harold Camping walked away with $8 million. It's not a joke. So you want to get rich quick? Start telling people when Jesus is coming back, okay? Uh, but don't do it. Um, and so the, the question is, we don't know when he's going to come back. It could be today. could be tomorrow. could be later this week. What does he want us to do in the meantime, between his first coming and his second coming? What does he want us to do? Kind of a loaded question, uh, but, the, but to summarize, he told us this, be what? Ready. Be ready, right? One place that he said that is later in Matthew chapter 24, 44. You'll see it up on the screen. Jesus speaking of the end times again in his second coming, he said, therefore, you also must what? Let's try that again. Therefore, you also must? Very good, very good. Be ready for the son of man, that's Jesus, is coming at an hour you do not expect. So this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 13, we look at the last two parables of Matthew chapter 13, we're going to see um, God gives us three ways in these scriptures of how to be ready for Christ's second coming. Now, there are other ways that he gives us in scripture, but here he focuses on three uh, essential ways to be ready for the coming of Christ, his second coming. So let's look at those together. Uh, how to be ready. The, the, the first one, if you're following in the notes, how can we be ready for the second coming of Christ? It's this, make sure you're righteous in God's sight. Make sure you're righteous in God's sight. 
doesn't matter if you think you're righteous in your own sight or if other people think you're righteous. What matters, only matters, is what God thinks because God only knows it all, right? And we see this in chapter 13, verses uh, 49 through 50 here. Take a look at those verses with me. It says, So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, that is the evil, into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in order to be spared from the the suffering of the fiery furnace, God says, you must be considered righteous on the day of judgment. And so the question this morning is this, that I'd like us all to ask ourselves is this, does God view me as righteous? Again, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or what other people think of you. God knows everything about you. Are you righteous? So um, he tells a parable to kind of bring us to that point, what we just read to explain what's going on. So let's look at this parable in verse 47 and 48. And this is uh, the seventh of the eight, eight parables he tells in Matthew 13. He says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, as we're gonna see, it's a drag net, a certain kind of net uh, that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. How many of you like to fish? Okay, a few of you. I'm from Oregon. People fish like crazy up there. Okay, so um, if you enjoy fishing, you'll relate to this. And uh, think of it, at least four of the 12 apostles were fishermen, right? So they completely related to this and all of them fished at some point of their lives. But so they fished and there were a number of different ways. There, there was the hook like we do today. Typically there were nets, but this one he's talking about here. If you look at the Greek, it's a drag net. Some of your versions say drag net. And that's what it was. And a dragnet um, was, was massive, right? Some of them were massive. And they had cork at the top to kind of make the top float and weights at the bottom so that the bottom would, would go down and then it'd be pulled like a giant wall through the Sea of Galilee to collect everything that was in its path. And some of these were huge. Um, some of them were up to a half square mile, okay? And so as, as it gathered everything, all, all the fish that were, were there, um, all the sea creatures, debris that was there, uh, vegetation, it would just gather it all and pull it in. And it, and it took a couple boats on either side, tied to either side. They'd draw it towards the shore. Sometimes it, one end would be tied to the shore. The other would be tied to a boat and it would draw it to the shore. And then a bunch of men would have to get out and pull this heavy you know, net, this drag net up onto the shore. And then they'd sit down and spend hours weeding through it and finding the good fish and getting rid of the bad fish. Now, we need to remember for the Jewish person at the time, they were under the strict kosher laws, right? So they couldn't, there were a lot of sea creatures and fish that they were not allowed to eat. So they kept the good ones for themselves. So what exactly does this parable mean? Thankfully, Jesus tells us in verses 49 and 50, which we already read, but let me just go back again and kind of point out each each piece, each part of this parable and how Jesus explains it. Look at verse 49 again. So it says, Jesus says, so it will be at the close of the age. That is when Christ returns, the end time. It says, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Of course, in the parable, um, the angels were represented by the fishermen, right? And the evil and the righteous were represented by the good fish and the bad fish, the fish they could eat and the fish they could not eat. Okay, then it goes on in verse 50, Jesus says, and throw them, that is, 
the evil, the, the, those, the bad fish, the, so the evil, uh, those he considers evil, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus makes it clear what will happen to those who he considers evil on that day. He doesn't mention what will happen to the righteous. Only the fact that they won't also be thrown into the fiery furnace as those he considers evil. Why doesn't he say what will happen to the righteous there? I don't know for sure, but it could be because a few verses earlier, he said in a similar parable of the wheat and the, the, the weeds, what was going to happen to the righteous. Look at verse 43 in your Bibles, Matthew 13, 43. Jesus said, then the righteous, this is beautiful, will shine like the sun. Where? In the kingdom of their father. What exactly does it mean that we'll shine like the sun? I don't know. But the, the, the important piece today is this, that we'll be in the Father's kingdom, right? Those who are considered righteous, that's what God has in store for them. So a major question that I've already asked and I'd like us to consider is, first of all, am I righteous? Are you righteous? And how do I become righteous? In, in our gut, we think well, we've got to achieve it. We, we've got to earn it, right? There's, there's slogans today, you know, hey, the best things in the life are those things that we have earned, right? That kind of thing, right? Can we ever be good enough to be considered righteous before God? That's a question. How do we, how do we become righteous? Um, because God makes it clear, if you're not considered righteous, the only other option is that you're considered evil. We want there to be a third option, right? Isn't being good, good enough? Jesus says there's two options. There's the good fish, there's the bad fish. There's the sheep, there's the goats. There's the wheat, there's the weeds. There's, there's no third option. So which one are you? That's what God wants us to ask ourselves this morning. And, and what we do, and I know I do this myself, uh, we justify ourselves, right? We, we try to make ourselves righteous in our own eyes. Like we compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't mur murdered or raped anyone. I'm a decent guy. You know, I, I pay most of my taxes. Um, we compare ourselves to others. We, we, we say, okay, well, I did that only because she did that to me. So we justify it, right? But, but the fact in the Bible is, is that we cannot be our own judges and we cannot be our own juries. Christ alone has that authority. For example, many scriptures say that, but Acts 10.42, the apostle Peter said this, and he, that's Jesus, commanded us, that's the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he, that's Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So we're either righteous in God's sight, or we're evil. It doesn't matter what other people think of us. It doesn't matter what we think of ourselves. What does God think? What does God think of you? Does he see, look at you and say, you're righteous. Here's the thing. In his books that we're going to read about in a little bit, in his books, um, figurative, of course, but he has recorded everything you've ever thought, desired, said, and did from the day you were born to the day you die. Nothing is hidden from him. Okay, so if you want to begin to think that, oh, I'm righteous before God, Think again, <laughs> right? And let's, let's talk about righteous people for a moment. 
there are two categories of righteous people. One category is this. People who are absolutely perfect, never sinned even once, never broken one of God's laws. How many people fit that category? One, who is it? Okay, yes, that's the Sunday school answer. You gotta have that right. Only one person fits that category. God cannot allow even one sin into his home in heaven. Can't even allow one sin. Jesus came to this earth, praise God, thank you that he did, to live a perfect life, to live a perfectly righteous life so that we sinners, we disobedient ones, we rebels toward God could receive a gift. And you know what that gift is? The gift of righteousness. Let me just pause real quick. Earlier, I meant to say this. When I think of the word righteous, one thing that helps me to remember what it means is to look at the first half of the word. Right. So what that means is this. To be right with God means in his ultimate courtroom, all of us are going to stand individually before God with no one there to defend us, with no one there to blame for how we lived our lives, just you and God alone. And we're going to have to give account to him for our lives. And if you are considered righteous, he's going to pound his gavel and say, not guilty, you are righteous, right? You are legally right with me in my court of law. And as a result of that, we are also relationally right with God. Our relationship is right. There's peace. There's there's rightness between us. There's reconciliation between us. So uh, keep that in mind. So again, there's two categories of righteous people. Let me get back to that. There's the perfect. And then there's those who receive the gift of righteousness. You take a look at the screen. This is a beautiful scripture. Um, One of my favorites, and I know that I say that um, every time I preach about at least one verse that I share. But uh, but Romans 5.17, man, this is incredible. This is the Apostle Paul explaining this free gift of righteousness that God gives to those who believe in Christ. He says, if because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man. Let me pause real quick there. What he's saying is that because of Adam and Eve's sin, they had to die and all their descendants also, including us, experienced death as well. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? So death reigned, but listen to this. Much more will those, okay, here's people. Now look, look at the two things that, that this, these people are or do. Those who, one, receive the abundance of God's grace, excuse me, of grace. And number two, the free gift of righteousness. Who, what are they going to do? They're going to reign in life. That's the kingdom of heaven through the one man, Jesus Christ. I love that it says the abundance of grace, right? It doesn't say that God has some grace or he has a lot of grace. It says he has an abundance of grace. Does anyone here ever get so full of shame and guilt, like looking at your life, man, there's no way that God could forgive me again for that. There is. There's an abundance of grace for you, for me. Anyone want to say thank you, Jesus, for that? Man, an abundance of grace. And part of that grace is this paycheck of righteousness that we have to earn. Is that that what it says? Oh, wait, it calls it a free gift. There's a difference between a gift and a paycheck, isn't there? A paycheck, you have to work real hard with your sweat, blood, and tears. With a gift, it's out of love, given freely. You don't deserve it. 
God gives us his righteousness. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life so that everyone who chooses to trust in him and believe in him and repent of their sins, turning from their sins, Jesus says, I give you as a gift, my righteousness, so that on judgment day, you stand before God and he says, you are right. You are not guilty. Enter in to the joy of my kingdom. Man, what a gift God gives us. And I, I love, and I didn't think I'd have time to do this, but I'll say it anyway. Write down Romans 4, 5. One of my other favorite verses in the Bible of the 2,000 favorite verses I have, I guess. <laughs> but Romans 4, 5, we say, well, who does he give the gift of righteousness to? It must be to those who live their whole lives and they work so hard to be perfect in every way, right? No, you're going to look at Romans 4, 5. You know who he gives the gift of righteousness to? To the ungodly. You heard that right. I said that loud just so you'd make sure you didn't miss what I said. To the ungodly. Okay, sign me up. I'm the ungodly. I need that righteousness because at the end of the day, we can't say to God, see, yeah, God, thanks for your righteousness. I needed a little bit of it, but man, look at how great I was. Now, when we receive the gift of righteousness, one, one way we respond in gratitude to the free gift of righteousness is saying, okay, God, with the strength of the Holy Spirit, I now want to reject my old ways of thinking and speaking and acting, and I want to live Christ's way in love, in forgiveness, in kindness, in charity, in peace instead of anger, etc. right? So we're not saying, okay, you get this gift of righteousness, then just go live like hell, right? No, no, no. So let me ask this one more time. If you were to stand before God's judgment throne today, which can happen whether you die or whether Christ comes back today, do you know for certain that God would say, you are righteous in my sight? Do you know that for certain? If I had the opportunity, I'd stand at the back doors and, and talk to each one of you individually to find out, tell me, do you know for sure? Because you know what? God wants you to know for sure. He wants you to have that joy and that peace that can only come from knowing that no matter whether I live or I die, I am right with God and he's going to accept me and welcome me warmly into his kingdom forever. With no more war and floods and all the crazy stuff going on in our world. Do you know if you'd be considered righteous? How can we be ready for Christ's second coming? First of all, first of all, make sure that you're righteous before God. Secondly, if you're following in the notes, be aware of Christ's judgment at his second coming. We've looked at his grace. Now we're going to look at his judgment. Both are true of Christ. He is the God of abundant grace, but he's also the God of ultimate judgment. We need to be ready for both. We need to be ready. So be aware of Christ's judgment when he, when he comes back. So um, I grew up in Oregon. When I lived in Oregon, um, I'd pick up hitchhikers and it was great because they're a captive audience. They've got to hear about Jesus because they're in my car seat and usually they have their seatbelts on. So we would talk about Jesus. And I can remember one young man, he was probably 19, 20 years old. And we got to the subject of hell because he seemed pretty confident in himself. Like he didn't really need Jesus. And I said, well, what about on judgment day when you're standing before God and he says, you're condemned to hell. You know, what about, what then? And he said, I'll deal with it when I get there. 
And I remember being shocked and sad at the same time. I don't remember what I said to him. I'm sure I tried to convince him that, you know, he shouldn't, you know, look at it that way. Um, but, but let's think about that for a minute. Can a person just simply deal with it when they get there? Okay. No, you're right. No. Maybe in those words, there was something of it. He was a sharp hitchhiker for a young man. Maybe he thought, I'm smart enough. I'll figure out a way to manipulate God into, you know, sort of smuggling me into the kingdom and getting me out of hell. Maybe, maybe that's what he thought. But here's the thing is, there are no second chances once we die. While we're on the earth, God is a God of amazing grace, right? He gives us a million second chances from the day you're born to the day you die. Every day is a second chance, right? Over and over. Here's another chance to repent. Here's another chance to turn to Christ, right? Aren't you thankful for that? But once we die, the deal has been sealed, right? Let me give you an example of that. In Revelation 20, verse 12, Jesus, um, it's speaking about him and the judgment seat. And the apostle John uh, received a vision of the coming judgment. And this is what he saw. He says, I, I saw the dead, great and small. Great would be like the rulers of the earth. Small would be like us. Standing before the throne and books were open. These are the books I was talking about. Uh, then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Notice those words are past tense, had done in this life. Everything we thought, everything we desired, everything we said, everything we did is written in the book of God's heart and mind. He knows everything that we've done. And we are judged based on that. It's past tense. If there was some way to, to repent in the future, once we're in hell, after we've been there for a while and we finally go, okay, God, I give up, you're right. Then it would say, um, according to what they had done and or will do, but it just says had done. So maybe when he said, you know, I can deal with it when I get there, maybe he was thinking, I'll suffer in hell, but, but I'm strong. You look like a strong, strong young buck. But could he really handle it? Is, is hell just sort of like a, ch a challenge to overcome? Or is it forever? The good news is that heaven, the kingdom of heaven, is way better than we could ever imagine. Way better. But the bad news is that hell is way worse than we could ever imagine. And we don't want anyone we know, and we don't ourselves want to go there, right? And this morning, as, as we talk about hell it's an emotional issue. It's not something I like to talk about. It's not something I like to read about in the Bible. But this is just as much a part of God as his love, his mercy, his grace. So and Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible talked about it. Why? Not to spoil our day, but to warn us. And Jesus was willing to suffer on the cross. He went through hell figuratively so we wouldn't have to go through hell literally. He bent over backwards so that all those who would simply believe in him and repent of their sins would be set free from the hell that they deserve, including myself. He has done everything. And, and, and I appreciate Ezekiel 18, 23. You'll see it up on the screen here. God doesn't enjoy the suffering of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, 23 says, 
God says this, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his evil way and live? Don't you love God's heart? He's not happy that people are going to hell. He did everything that was necessary to keep people from going to hell. We simply need to truly, honestly believe in Christ, who he was, what he did for us, and receive him into our lives, repenting of our sins. So some people say, well, God is evil. No, no, no. It's not true. God is just and must punish sin. So, so, so what is hell? Let's think about that for a minute. Um, is hell, and I, you hear this a lot, it's this mental state of mind, like, I'm going through hell in my mind because I'm depressed or, you know, something like this. No. Uh, is hell war? You, you hear that sometimes. War is hell. War is terrible, but hell is worse. Um, people who suffer chronic pain, oh, it's, it's horrible. I see it every day. Is it like hell? Maybe to a certain degree, but, but hell is much worse. What is hell then? Hell is in the afterlife, a place of conscious, eternal torment, that is because of God's justice. Okay, let's, let's look at a few scriptures about this. And again, this isn't something that I look forward to talking about, but it's here in the scripture and Jesus thought it was important. So let's look at it. Look at verse 50 again, speaking of those who were considered evil by Christ on judgment day. It says, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping certainly because of the pain, but also because of the hopelessness. Many trials we go through in this life, we, we can, if, if we're mature enough, we can look past them and say, okay, there's an end to this, this trial. Not so with hell, there's, there's no end. And it also says gnashing of teeth. Well, what is that? You can go back, it's not hard to do and look at the a dozen or so passages in the Bible that speak of the gnashing of teeth. And what you'll find is gnashing of teeth means anger towards an enemy. Um, some people try to say, well, once people have been in hell for a while, they'll, they'll finally realize their need to repent and they'll have a tender, humble heart towards God and confess their sin and say, I was wrong, you were right, and then God will forgive them and give them eternal life. Well, that's, that's not found in the Bible at all. What it says is that they'll be gnashing their teeth in a sense saying, I'm angry at you, God, my enemy. Um, and it also, in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus, again, warning us so that people won't go there um, about the worm that doesn't die. Verse uh, nine, chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus said, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So uh, when a body is in the grave, it's decomposing, of course, worms eat it. In, in hell with the resurrected body, it won't decompose like that. So therefore the worm can continue uh, for eternity. I won't say more than that because there are children in the room. He says in Matthew 13, 50 that we saw, he, he calls it a fiery furnace. And that's often a picture that he gives us of hell. Again, not a pretty picture. Um, Mark 9, 43, you'll see on the screen, Jesus said, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, I've, I've grown up in Oregon and California, lived 
here most of my life uh, in Oregon and California, there've been lots of fires, lots of forest fires that were absolutely devastating. And those of you who are firefighters, you know, you've been on the scene, you know how horrible some of those fires are. And you think this is gonna be impossible to ever put this out. Well, eventually they get put out, right? What this is saying over and over, Jesus said over and over is that hell is the fire that never goes out. What a nightmare. And, and tragically, it's, it's eternal. And Jesus said that a number of times. People try to say, well, the, the word eternal doesn't really mean eternal. But Jesus made it clear that it meant eternal in statements like this. In Matthew 25, 46, you'll see it on the screen. Jesus said, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Placing eternal punishment in the same sentence right next to eternal life indicates that the word eternal means the same thing. You can't have one meaning here and one meaning there. Um, you know, the, the, the feel-good religions um, change hell. And, and it, it's understandable. I, I read this and I go, man, is there some way, God, that hell could be temporary? That, um, but you just can't get around it, no matter how hard you try. But the, the feel-good religions, the, the cults and other religions that whatever you want to call them, they look at things like this. They look at things like the Trinity and go, that doesn't make sense. Let's change it. Hell, eternal, that doesn't make sense. Let's change it. And they say, well, that would make God unfair, right? For, for we who do temporary sins to suffer for eternity for that, how would you respond to that? When, whenever we sin, whoever we sin against, ultimately it's a sin against God, isn't it? God is the only ultimately eternal, be, eternal being who has no beginning and no end, right? When we sin against him, we're, we're sinning against an eternal, infinite being, which requires an eternal, infinite consequence. It's overwhelming. To reiterate this, we see in the vision that John has in Revelation 14 about those who receive the mark of the beast and reject Christ, which really then goes back to everyone who rejects Christ. It says, um, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And listen to this. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they will have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. These are, these are people we're talking about. And it first says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That means forever, right? And some say, well, maybe it's that their, their bodies last forever and ever, but they're, they're, they're consciously not there. Like they're kind of annihilated. They're, they're, they cease to exist. But then it goes on and says, and they have no rest day or night. To have no rest means you're, conscious of what's going on, right? You can't rest. You can't get away from it. Heaven is referred to as rest. Hell is referred to as no rest. I hate getting exhausted in this life. That's one thing I hate about getting old. I'm tired all the time. I look forward to heaven where I'll be eternally energized like the energized bunny, right? That'll be awesome. But hell is constant exhaustion from the pain they suffer. 
and the hopelessness they suffer. Why talk about all this? This is not the feel-good thing. One reason? Because we need to make sure we don't go there. Right? And also, I find that as I study hell, I'm so much more grateful to God for heaven, for his grace by suffering on the cross for you and me. What his suffering really accomplished Hell is important to understand and know and not to sweep under the rug, not to change, not to twist. You know, um, some have made up something that's called purgatory, right? Because they say, well, there's gotta be another option. I'm not good enough for heaven and I'm not bad enough for hell like the song goes. Maybe there's a third option. Maybe there's, let's come up with something where we go there for a little bit, we suffer for a while and, and, and in this place pay for our sins. And then we'll be purified so that we can go to heaven. And they've called it purgatory. And and what we'll find is in these feel-good religions is that we come up with these ideas and then try to read them back into the Bible and find some sort of support in the Bible. So they do that with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go and look at that and, and, uh, and, and we can talk about that if you ever want to. But 1 Corinthians 5 does not talk about purgatory. So, so they make up this third option. And Think about it, though, for a minute. Purgatory is against the Bible. It's against the gospel. And it's against grace. It can't be found in the Bible. If we say, okay, I can pay for my sin by suffering in purgatory, then what does that do to Christ's suffering on the cross? It diminishes it or makes it absolutely unnecessary. Jesus, you didn't really need to do that. I could have just spent a few more years burning in purgatory to become purified, to go to heaven. And it's against grace as well, right? We could get to heaven and say, here I am, Jesus. I went through all the suffering and hard work to make it here. Oh, but I died for you on the cross. Oh, Jesus. I only needed like 50% from you and I needed to cover the other 50%. Aren't I great, Jesus? See, but when it's all by God's grace, He alone gets the credit. He alone gets the praise, not us. (laughs) The only credit we get is we're the ones who put him on the cross because of our sins, right? So how can we be ready for Christ's second coming? First of all, do you know that you know that you know that before God, he sees you as righteous, that you have received the free gift of Christ's righteousness? And secondly, be warned and be ready for the judgment of God. And if you have the righteousness of God, you'll be free from the judgment of God. And then thirdly, we're out of time. So I'm just going to blitz through the third point here of how to be ready for Christ's second coming. Thirdly, if you're following in the notes, share the treasure of God's word with others. We know the gospel, the good news that we deserve hell, but Christ in his grace lived a perfect life, died for our sins, not for his, because he didn't sin, rose from the dead to give us his righteousness, to forgive our sins, to give us eternal life. God is saying now, pass it on to others. And we see that in the very last parable. I'll read it and just make a few comments and then we'll pray and take communion. Verse 51, he says to his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, in other words, with understanding, of God's truth comes responsibility, right? 
And the responsibility is to take the good news that we've learned and we've received and share it with others. You'll see that here. And so Jesus says, therefore, every scribe, that is every teacher of the law, he's saying you disciples are scribes, teachers of the law, who has been, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, trained there means discipled, who's been discipled for the kingdom of heaven to preach the kingdom of heaven is like this. Here's now the final parable, the eighth parable that he tells in Matthew 13. He says, he's like this, a master of a house, which means a head of a household, who brings out of his treasure, his storehouse, what is new and what is old. Real quick, a master of a house or a head of a household would have a store of, of, of valuable things so that when his family needed it, he could bring it out. A stingy head of household would say, nope, I'm, I'm not sharing my stuff with my family, with my household. I'm keeping it for safekeeping for myself. But a generous and benevolent head of household would open that up and share it with others. Jesus is saying, those who have been taught the word of God we are like head of households. Ultimately, it was the apostles, right? But also as disciples today, we have a similar responsibility like the head of a household to open up our treasures and share what we've learned, both Old Testament and new. Because he says there are old treasures and new. The Old Testament is full of treasure, right? Of God's word. The New Testament more fully and completely reveals the truths of the Old Testament. God says, open it up and share it with others. I'm so grateful that the first apostles obeyed that, right? They passed it on to the people that they knew and to the next generation. And then it was passed on to the next generation like a baton, to the next generation like a baton. And now it's passed to us. I am grateful that they answered that call. And God is giving us a very similar call to take that baton and pass it to our kids, to our neighbors, to our relatives, our friends, the people we meet, to the next generation, and sharing the treasure of God's word. That's how we can be ready. And that's how we can help other people to be ready for the second coming of Christ as well. Let me close with this. If, if you're here this morning and you're not sure, man, Andy, you've, you've asked a really hard question. Am I righteous in God's sight? I don't know. You could say to yourself, maybe I'm a sinner. I know it. I've broken God's laws. Guess what? I have too. I can tell you about a sin that I did yesterday. I'm a pastor, pastor's sin. Christ died for those sins. We confess it, he forgives it. Here's the thing. If you want Christ's righteousness, God has done all the work for you by Christ's suffering and death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. You simply need to open your arms and say, I believe it, I receive it. And now I wanna turn away from what you say is evil and sinful. And I wanna live in your new way of life. But I can't do it without your strength and power and help. So give me that. And he gives out of his grace and love and mercy to you, gladly gives you the righteousness of Christ. So maybe this morning is, is the time that you'll do that. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are thankful, so thankful to you, Lord, that even though we deserve hell, you've had a plan from even before you created the earth for Christ to suffer in our place to forgive us totally and to give us his righteousness. Thank you that you've made us citizens of heaven even now. Thank you that we can come to you every time we sin, every day, and you forgive us, you cleanse us, you wipe it away. Thank you, Jesus. And as we take communion now, 
Lord, bless this communion, bless this time. Help us to thank you and, and be so grateful to you for who you are and all that you've done for us. Help us to confess our sins now as we take communion. In Jesus' precious and awesome name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So if you didn't uh, grab a communion cup, you can grab them um, in the back wall. Don't be ashamed. Or maybe have someone sitting next to you, grab it if you can't. And I just want us, as we talk about communion for a minute here, to focus on the screen at Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Again, that scripture that I said is one of my favorites. Such a beautiful scripture. Focus on those words. The abundance of grace and the gift, the free gift of righteousness. That's what the bread and the juice symbolize. His suffering on that cross, breaking his body for us, shedding his blood for us to the point where he died. The sinless one who, the only human being who didn't deserve death, chose to die so that those who deserved death, like you and me, could live. What grace. Thank you, Jesus. And that's what communion is about. It's, it's about thanking Jesus for what he's done. And it's about confessing our sins. God wants us to confess our sins every day. But communion is a, is a great time, a great reminder to do that. Just be honest before God. He knows. You can't hide anything from him. And ask God to empower you and strengthen you to turn away from those sins and to, to live a righteous life, a righteous way of life in that area that you're struggling with. These, these symbolize, the bread and the juice symbolizes the righteousness of Christ. You know, at the moment you finally believed and said, okay, Jesus, I believe in you. I need you. I trust you. I want to live for you now. At that moment, Christ gave you his righteousness as a gift. When we take communion and we take that into our bodies, it's a symbol of and reminder of back when we took into our hearts the righteousness of Christ. Let us, let us remember that. So when you're ready, if you are a believer and follower of Christ, let's take this. And I encourage you to take the bread first so that way the juice won't spill on you and then take the juice. Um, if you haven't yet made that decision to follow Christ and to receive his forgiveness and righteousness, just, just hold off on, on taking communion until you're ready. And I'd love to help you. Anyone with one of these lanyards on or anyone else you know who's a, a believer and follower of Christ would love to help you understand how to begin a relationship with Christ and receive his free gift of forgiveness and righteousness. So please take this when you're ready. And then John's gonna close us at the end. So God bless you all.